This program is brought to you by Emory University. Good morning, everybody. I'm so glad you came to this lecture. Uh, it's an exciting opportunity to learn from a scholar outside of our community, and uh, we're delighted to welcome you here today. Uh, Professor you. McFarland will be doing the introduction so that you learn more about um, the scholarship and the work uh, of this uh, wonderful lecturer. Let's bow for a moment of prayer for our meal. God, we thank you for the wonders of this great day, for the food that we have before us, for the community that shares it together. Use all that we have for nourishment, both in food and in community life, in your service. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, I'd like to echo uh, the Dean's uh, welcome everybody to come here, and uh, also especially to welcome our lecturer, uh, Dr. Jennifer Graber, uh, who is uh, currently Assistant Professor of Religious, Religious Studies at the College of Worcester in Worcester, Ohio, but found out this morning actually although the title is still Assistant Professor, she has in fact been granted tenure, so uh, <laughs> E's to be crossed and the I's to be dotted. Um, she received her BA from Goshen College, MTS from Canberra School of Theology. <laughs> and her PhD from Duke University. We won't have any uh, in 2006. Uh, her research, uh, broadly in the uh, area of American religious history, uh, looks at religious reform movements, particularly in the 19th century, um, and most recently in uh, Native uh, American Christian encounters with special focus on religious transformations pr uh, prompted by the conflict between settlers and Native peoples in the West. Her dissertation research, however, in her first book, uh, which is up here, available for uh, consultation afterwards, The Furnace of Affliction, Prisons and Religion in Antibellum America, uh, as the title suggests, is an exploration of evangelical Protestant efforts to make religion central to emerging practices and philosophies of prison discipline in the late 18th uh, through the mid-19th century. The title of her presentation today continues that theme, The Search for the Christian Prison in the Early American Republic. Please join me in welcoming Professor Graham. Thank you. Um, I want to thank you, Dean Love, and thank you, Dr. McFarland, for inviting me here. Um, I have never been in this building. Um, when I was here, it was Bishop's Hall in all its dingy glory. So um, this is very exciting uh, and very nice. Um, and I'm excited to talk to you today about um, a talk that I titled The Search for the Christian Prison in the Early American Republic. Um, and given this title, I hope it already um, provokes some questions for you. Um, the Search for the Christian Prison. Um, who on earth would think that prisons could be Christian. Prisons in the United States today stand in stark contrast to Christian virtues, particularly hope. Currently, there are more than 2 million people incarcerated in the United States and more than 6 million people under some sort of correctional supervision. Treatment of prisoners in some places is scandalous, where young offenders and the mentally ill are left forsaken without treatment. Um, more than 50,000 people are locked up in solitary confinement in the United States, often in supermax facilities. Teenagers can be sent to prison for life. The prison, it seems, is an institution founded on the absence of hope. Who would associate the word Christian with such a place? Well, I'll tell you who. <laughs> Prominent citizens of the early American Republic. And that's because the prisons around them were brand new. There was no sign that these institutions would someday hold such a high percentage of the population. There were no life sentences for anybody, let alone juveniles. There was yet to develop a strong animosity between inmates and those charged with their oversight. Basically, there was no history. In fact, these citizens thought that the prisons would help them overcome their own awful history. 
To them, the prisons were the answer, the Christian answer, to the problem of crime and the burdens of historical practices of punishment. The clean prison cell could replace the old responses to crime, such as whipping, branding, and hanging. Incarceration would be a Christian nation's way of overcoming old world brutality from Europe and from their own colonial past. These citizens assumed that any prison they built would be a Christian prison. And by that they meant that lawbreakers would be overseen by benevolent members of society and given a chance to reform their lives while incarcerated. Humane treatment leading to reformed lives. To them, the very definition of hope. So why, as my title suggests, did these citizens have to search for a Christian prison? It seems that these citizens were quite confident that their program of incarceration would lead to inmates' moral and spiritual regeneration. It sounds like they built new prisons in the 1790s and found them to be fine Christian institutions. So why talk about it as a search? It's true, for a little while, in the prison's earliest years, these folks were confident in their new institution. But things got complicated very quickly. And to illustrate these complications, I want to show you a picture. All right, so I gave you a handout. I'm old-fashioned that way. It's a picture of a body being beaten, an image of a prison guard looming over an inmate with a whip in his hand. It's an illustration from an 1839 book published in upstate New York. On subsequent pages, the author chastised the authorities who promoted such suffering in New York's prisons. Quote, it is abominable to think that in a Christian country, prisoners should be flogged to death. The author's catalog of prison cruelties was serious. Beatings that caused consumption and death. Despairing inmates who committed suicide. The whipping of mentally ill and female convicts, despite legal restrictions against such, on such activity. The writer concluded that America's prisons, built as an alternative to devastating punishments in Europe, had themselves become barbaric. Sites in which inmates lived like, quote, a menagerie of human tame beasts. This 1839 book about prison suffering could have been penned by any number of Protestant reformers concerned about prisons, but it wasn't. It was written and published by an ex-convict. If you turn your paper over, right, it's a tricky handout. If you turn your paper over, you'll see that the formerly imprisoned author targeted not only the cruelty of prison officials, but also the Protestant chaplains and reformers who argued that experiences of suffering preceded an inmate's reformation. As the taunting caption makes clear, the writer believed that the quote-unquote Christian reformation, supported by Protestant reformers, did not prompt inmate reform, but rather provided a spiritual seal of approval for brutal punishments and ceaseless physical suffering. The Protestant reformers' deep investments in the prison enterprise, it appears, led some inmates to conclude that they approved of this sort of activity. So despite the earliest reformers' ambitions, and the, pr the prisons were no quick solution to the cruel corporal punishments of the past. Indeed, they seemed to open the door to a whole new set of qu tricky questions about sin and salvation, suffering and redemption and participation in the workings of government and the political sphere. I've come to think that buried deep within the search for the Christian prison was a deep concern and a set of paradoxical ideas about suffering. And I want to talk to you today about Protestant activists involved in prison reform, particularly their ideas about the purpose and limits of sufferings visited upon incarcerated criminals. Protestant reformers, of course, care deeply about this issue. The broader history of 19th century social reform movements shows that Protestants tried to alleviate suffering wherever they saw it, everywhere from slavery to orphanages and what they presumed to be suffering of all Catholics and convents. But as this illustration suggests, their efforts were sometimes contested by reformers from other theological persuasions, by government officials with different priorities, and as we see here, by the inmates who were subject to these practices. In this way, we can see that there were several interested parties trying to determine the spiritual and social meanings of suffering. The search for a Christian prison 
one that housed appropriate sufferings directed toward an appropriate outcome, was not so easy as the first generation of Protestant reformers thought it would be. But I want to backtrack just a little bit. And I want to tell you how I came upon this book and this picture. Um, as far as I know, this book, um, and uh, there's a little title reference here at the bottom, um, it's called A Peep into the State Prison at Auburn, um, Auburn, upstate New York. Um, there's only one copy of this book preserved in a library in the United States, and something had to lead me to it. Um, and that is to say that every intellectual pursuit has a backstory. Um, and I want to, and I think at certain moments it's helpful to know the backstory behind a person's intellectual pursuits. And so I'll tell you about two experiences that led me to searching out a book like this. Um, the first is how I grew up. And I grew up in a religious tradition actively engaged in prison visitation. Um, I grew up on a farm in northern Indiana. And when I was 10, I accompanied my mother, my Sunday school teacher, and several members of my Sunday school class to the Indiana State Prison at Michigan City. I had a pen pal who was incarcerated there. His name was Lonnie. I learned later, after I grew up, that he had been convicted of killing two Indiana State Troopers while under the influence of drugs. Lonnie and I were pen pals for several years, and since I was 10, I sent him things like gum and uh, letters about the weather in the mail. I visited him in prison many times. I thought that all Christians did that, um, and when I found out that I was wrong about that, I was surprised. Um, I had no idea that it was unusual to take your 10-year-old child to prison, but I found out later it really is. <laughs> um, so, and, and what really was surprised me about it was um, that there's a verse in the Bible that says you should do that sort of thing. And I didn't know that there were people who didn't just then follow that direction. Um, but I was 10, so. Um, so the second uh, experience, I would say, uh, that really shaped my inquiry was a visit to the historic jail in downtown Pittsburgh, and it was not long after I took Professor Holyfield's class uh, in American religious history here at Candler. And on my tour of that facility, the docent said that the jail was modeled on an earlier Pennsylvania model shaped by Quaker reformers. This seemed very odd to me um, because the tour guide had just before said that the institution had been shut down uh, about 10 years earlier for kind of massive cruelty to inmates. So I couldn't figure out, I mean, I thought the tour guide must be wrong. The Quakers could not have started a place that had to be shut down for cruelty to the, peop the people who lived in it, um, or something happened to this place that the Quakers couldn't have anticipated. And I wanted to find out what that was. Um, and so I started reading. Um, I started reading, and I wanted to see how historians have explained Christians' participation or perhaps lack of participation uh, in America's prisons. But nothing I read really answered that question, um, at least not in ways that I found satisfying. So I decided to do that work myself. Um, I applied to graduate school. And on a research visit to the New York Historical Society, I found the book with this illustration. And when I did, that was a moment when I realized that this was not a simple story about well-intentioned Protestant reformers trying to make a good institution and redeem the past. Instead, I began to see that the biblical mandate to visit the incarcerated demands us to confront questions about power and questions about suffering. So I want to talk to you today about the first prisons built in the United States and how Protestant reformers played a part in their creation and their development. And I'll focus on two things. First, what they imagined a Christian prison would be like. You know, what did they think that would be? How they imagined that the prison would alleviate the bad sufferings caused by older forms of criminal justice and host a new kind of good suffering that would lead to spiritual transformation. And second, I want to look at how the search for this sort of prison brought them into complicated relationships with the government and with the inmates they sought to serve. And I'd like to do this by telling you some stories about the people involved in these activities. So let's start with a little history, because I'm a historian. The English colonies that would become the United States had a criminal code and a set of punishments that looked similar to the motherland. There were jails, but lawbreakers were placed in these structures only to await trial or await their punishment. Nobody thought that the jail was anything but a holding cell. They held criminals until their real punishment could be delivered. 
And these punishments hurt either the pocketbook or the body. Many colonial era lawbreakers were fined for their offenses. Officials understood these fines to be a deterrent to crime, as well as a way to compensate the community for the lawbreaker's offense. Other criminals endured public corporal punishment. Their head and arms were placed in stocks for many hours of the day, usually in a town, village, or square. Some were whipped publicly. Some were branded. A few had their ears cropped, which was basically a kind of disfigurement of the ear. And many were hanged. In colonial America, you could be hanged for property crimes such as counterfeiting, forging, and horse stealing, as well as bodily crimes that we associate the death penalty with, such as rape and murder. In the 1790s, some Americans began to experiment with incarceration as a primary mode of punishment. European thinkers had been highly critical of harsh corporal punishment for many decades. Enlightenment-era thinkers such as Montesquieu and Beccaria had articulated alternate penal codes for some time. In England, some Protestant reformers had already called for incarceration as an alternative to corporal punishment. These conversations circulated to the United States in 1790, right, in the 1790s, which is a very opportune moment to try something new. So in the 1790s, these citizens could actually try to put these revolutionary ideas in place. A broad array of American citizens were interested in criminal justice reform, but the cause found particular purchase among Protestant reformers and ministers, every, ranging in groups from the Quakers to the Congregationalists to the Methodists to the Baptists, lots of folks. These Protestant reformers were deeply concerned about the bodily affliction experienced by lawbreakers who were the subjects of harsh corporal punishment. They shared a growing distaste for corporal punishment, not just of lawbreakers, but also of enslaved people, of sailors, of wives, of school children, right? All of these, the beating of, the, of many classes of people uh, were up for debate in this period. But that did not mean that the Protestant reformers rejected all forms of suffering. To the contrary, these prison reformers inhabited religious worlds in which some sort of suffering served as a portal to moral and spiritual regeneration. Quakers, for instance, had long held that one experienced spiritual tumult before recognizing the inward light. Revival-minded Congregationalists and Presbyterians subscribed to a pattern in which spiritual anxiety and, if not anguish, preceded the experience of God's grace. Despite coming from various traditions that differed in the details, the Protestant prison reformers had a common spiritual trajectory. Some sort of suffering paved the way for redemption and reformation. Even though anguish and affliction had a place in their spiritual systems, these reformers deplored two kinds of suffering. Suffering for the wrong purpose and suffering that passed certain limits. Concerning the former, they argued against European modes of punishment because it served only as an exhibition of a monarch's power, right? So it was suffering for the wrong purpose. About the latter, they argued for strict limits or the outright abolition of corporal punishment because they believed too much bodily affliction did more harm than good, right? So they, didn't, they wanted it to be for the right purpose and they wanted just the right amount. These reformers consistently resisted what they believed was the mistreatment of the body. Even so, they supported limited forms of suffering because mental and spiritual and in some cases physical suffering they believed could be regenerative. Right? So this is the kind of tension that they, that they dealt with. They didn't like some kind of suffering, but they didn't want to give it up entirely either, with one exception. Right? And I'm going to tell you about the exception first, and then I'll go to the rule. Um, there was one exception, uh, and his name was Thomas Eddy. And Thomas Eddy really, I would say, single-handedly uh, brought the transformation from corporal punishment to incarceration in New York State, which had one of the earliest systems of prisons in the United States. He was a Quaker. Uh, and an activist on many fronts. And he was convinced that abolishing corporal punishment meant the end to unnecessary and unchristian sufferings visited upon criminals. He, along with a committee of mostly Quaker members, lobbied the New York State Legislature for an overhaul of the penal code and the authority to build the state's first prison. Basically, New York State gave them thousands of dollars to design and build a prison and then run it. Can you imagine? I mean, it's just... Uh, mind-boggling, um, to the Quakers. Um, <laughs> he consulted other Quaker reformers about prison design and daily discipline. He believed that his prison would not only put an end to inordinate suffering, 
but also that lawbreakers would want to be incarcerated as a way to escape the pressures of urban impoverished life. He was sure that inmates would gladly receive the decent diet, the health care, the job training, and the religious counsel that he and the other Quaker committee members would provide. Shocker, Eddie was wrong. Right? Um, and he was wrong because he had miscalculated um, on the question of suffering. To be sure, Eddie never struck an inmate. Right? He was absolutely clear, no corporal punishments whatsoever. His prison provided wholesome food, clean clothes, fresh water, and reading classes. His prison in what's now Greenwich Village um, even had a garden. Right? He was very sure it had to have a garden uh, in its architectural plan. But Eddie underestimated the sort of suffering prompted by the loss of freedom and by being cut, up, cut off from one's friends and family. Although Eddie imagined his prison to be like a garden in which his inmates' characters could grow and develop in a decent environment, it didn't work out that way. Although Eddie's Quaker tradition taught him that the spiritual value of privation, most of his inmates did not share that same sentiment. For them, incarceration and exile from their families was suffering, even if no one ever hit them. In response, they refused to work, they plotted their escape, they destroyed tools in their prison workshops, they started riots, and on a few occasions, they tried to burn the place down. Thomas Eddy's experience tells us something that confirms what French philosopher Michel Foucault has also observed. Even if someone's soul is the object of your attention, your only target is the body. It is the body that's incarcerated, forced to labor, compelled to walk and to eat, to wash and rest, sit in chapel and kneel in prayer. The ears receive messages of spiritual import, the eyes gaze over religious tracts slipped under the cell door, the back bears the weight of a wheelbarrow laden with stones or rests on a hard bed at night. Protestant reformers like Eddie, so focused on the spiritual outcome, had only the inmates' bodies to work with. Eddie underestimated the myriad ways that inmates could experience suffering, even if they were never struck with a whip. The Protestant reformers who came after him, however, did not. They did not underestimate that suffering. In fact, they decided to channel it. So let me tell you about them. So if Eddie's the exception to the rule, here's the group that really kind of proves the rule. A new generation of Protestant reformers soon had their chance to get involved in the New York prisons. Eddie's failed experiment led to two big changes. First, New York state officials stepped in, removed the Quakers, and started running the prisons themselves. And they replaced the Quakers with kind of up-and-coming party members. So getting an appointment to run the prison was now a kind of stop on a way of a kind of up-and-coming political career in New York state politics. Um, second, as the Quakers retreated, other interested Protestant reformers stepped in. But they had to develop new ways to be involved. They weren't going to get to run the place. So what was it that they would actually contribute? Um, and so if they wanted to influence the course of discipline, they had to make new relationships with government officials. They didn't get to run the place on their own. They now were in a kind of partnership, and they were not the boss. And in this situation, they developed a kind of uh, role that we now know today, the role of the prison chaplain. Right? So this is where the prison chaplaincy comes into being in the United States. And it's a system we still have. These Protestant reformers had to negotiate with government officials in order to shape an institution that they could approve of. And here is where I think we actually now have the search for the Christian prison. Right? They have to actually take what is becoming a more secular institution and shape it in a way that they can approve of, make it as Christian as possible. Um, and it's at this moment, I think, that the conversations about suffering get even more interesting. Um, they were conversations about what sort of suffering was good and what sort of suffering was bad. It was about who should inflict suffering and who should be afflicted by it. It was about the best conditions for the right kind of suffering and how to take occurrences of suffering and turn them as with some sort of like alchemical flourish um, into an inmate's spiritual and political transformation, right? It was like, I mean, they just wanted to like use that moment of suffering and use that, that place of the prison, the site of the prison to kind of make this magic thing happen. Um, and over time, they had had to have new sets of conversations, um, conversations about what to do when the infliction of suffering went too far, um, if the intention started off good but went awry, what to do when the afflicted began to speak back 
and tell them their own interpretations of the afflictions that were visited upon them. So I'm going to tell you about one more episode um, in this search for the Christian prison, an episode from the 1830s, a time by which there was a well-established pattern of Protestant pr prison chaplains working in government-run institutions. And this episode involves three men. First, the Reverend Louis DeWight, a Boston Congregationalist minister who channeled his moderate Calvinism toward various social reform movements. Second, a warden, Robert Wiltsey. Back then they called them agents. Um, he was the agent of New York's notorious Sing Sing prison. And finally, the anonymous writer I began with, the ex-convict who wrote the book and paid for the illustration uh, that I passed out to you earlier. The book titled, A Peep Inside the State Prison at Auburn. The Reverend Louis DeWight, a Congregationalist minister, graduated from Andover Seminary and went to work with the American Tract Society and the American Education Society. And during a break from these efforts, he took a journey by horseback to the southern states. Before leaving Boston, he decided he would pass out Bibles to prisoners uh, and those uh, inmates in jail along the way. And the trip changed his life. After viewing dying orphans in a Washington, D.C. jail, debtors wallowing beside murderers in state prisons, and inmates remanded for indefinite periods with no legal recourse, Dwight decided to act. He returned to Boston in 1826 and founded the Prison Discipline Society of Boston, which became one of the most influential prison reform societies in antebellum America. For Dwight, American criminal justice was not only the government's problem, but the church's problem. Ideally, for Dwight, the government operated strict, orderly prisons. Christians then visited and evangelized the inmates inside them. Dwight's experience in the Southern journey made him question how the message of a just and merciful God could penetrate the gloom and filth of most American prisons. If it could not, he felt compelled to make the prisons a place where God's work could be seen, a place more amenable to evangelization. Through his prison society, Dwight affirmed the state's duty to punish criminals and argued for systems of punishment that fostered inmate reformation through Christian conversion and a disciplined life. He mentored and financially supported congregational and Presbyterian prison chaplains who served in institutions throughout New England and the Mid-Atlantic. The society published myriad reports on their findings, including their assessment of each institution's religious programming. Members lobbied state legislatures and federal officials in Washington. They carried on a vast correspondence with prison officials throughout the United States and Europe. Dwight wanted firm prison discipline. Some level of suffering was acceptable to him. He looked to his own experience, which included a period of anguish before his conversion and experience of grace. Prisoners, he reasoned, needed a similar kind of experience, especially if they resisted the order and discipline of prison life. Dwight affirmed that the limited use of corporal punishment was consistent with a program of redemptive suffering. The lash, he wrote, was immediate and not permanently damaging. It did not incite madness or ill health. Prison was surely difficult, but its positives, Dwight said, over overwhelmed its negatives. In his first society report, Dwight called New York's Auburn prison, quote, a beautiful example of what may be done by proper discipline. Its limited course of suffering was directed toward the right purpose, according to Dwight. So a little suffering going in the right direction, he thought, would make the prisons Christian. Some of New York's first prison agents agreed with reformers like Dwight, and they welcomed chaplains that Dwight supported into their institutions. But by the 1830s, there was a serious rift between New York prison officials and the ministers who tried to work inside their institutions. For a variety of reasons, including the surge in Irish Catholic immigration, new fears about crime, including crime that was talked about endlessly in the emerging penny press, declining urban conditions, and the increasingly fractious debate over slavery, New York's prison agents were cracking down on inmates. The conditions were getting tougher and tougher every year. Sing Sing's top administrator, Robert Wiltsey, made his position clear in testimony before the New York State Legislature in 1834. Criminals, he argued, quote, were the most desperate kind of people. They could not be affected by good influences and moral suasion. Quote, they can feel nothing but that which comes home to their bodily suffering. Wiltsey declared that disobedient prisoners needed, quote, stripes upon their naked backs in order to build in them a fear to transgress. 
Wiltsey worried that Protestant reformers and prison chaplains, especially people like Dwight, would undermine Sing Sing's strict discipline. These chaplains, he declared, were, quote, deceived. They suffered from, quote, mistaken sympathy, and they believed that adult felons could be rehabilitated. All right, so here we're getting this sense of no hope for prisoners. Wiltsey and many of his colleagues in corrections disagreed. They sparred with ministers and reformers like Dwight. Wiltsey's predecessor even bodily assaulted a hired chaplain and threw him out of Sing Sing. Uh, he actually had injuries from the uh, experience, or at least that's what he talked about in his biography. And these biographies are always a little bit overblown. Um, but it was a very kind of major account in his autobiography. Um, and, so, and I think that really the conflict between agents like Wiltsey and reformers like Dwight, it was a conflict about suffering. Um, what kind of suffering was allowable, and what larger purpose did it serve? Right? Dwight wants it to serve moral regeneration. Wiltsey wants it to serve uh, people who are afraid to break the law. Protestant reformers and prison agents were not the only ones engaged in the prison suffering debates. Former inmates also made claims about suffering inside American prisons. The anonymous author of A Peep into the State Prison called New York's prison, quote, a terrible place of torture. He described extreme physical punishments and claimed that these practices undermine the prison's ostensible purpose to reform inmates. True reformation, the author argued, was impossible in such conditions and could only be faked in effort to get special privileges. He bemoaned the way that some prisoners had tried to reform and met violence at every turn. Of one such inmate, he wrote that, quote, the guards had fairly flogged the notion out of his head. On another, his profession of Christianity faltered when he realized, quote, the hypocrisy was the governing virtue of the prison. He believed that the guards held, quote, an instrument of torture in one hand and a Bible in the other. Right? So his books were just full of quote after quote. Um, and this inmate writer did not limit his critique to prison officials and prison guards. He also assailed Auburn Prison's chaplain. According to his volume, the minister visited infrequently and met only those inmates who professed religion. Especially worrisome was the chaplain's treatment of the sick, the dying, and the dead. The ex-convict claimed that the minister sometimes neglected the prison hospital for five or six weeks at a time. He denied dying prisoners of the Roman Catholic faith visitation from a priest. He often failed to contact necks of kin when inmates approached death, and as a result, many prisoners' bodies went unclaimed. To his horror, Prison staff folded up corpses and stuffed them into whiskey barrels or old wooden boxes. These deceased inmates received no Christian burial. Some were even given over to dissection to local doctors. The writer ends, quote, it is too abominable to think that in a Christian country that for committing a small offense, prisoners should be flogged to death and their bodies given over to dissection. Right, so clearly in the 19th century, no one's afraid of being dramatic right, in, their, in their books. Right? The agents are dramatic, the reformers are dramatic, and the inmates are all dramatic. But this is, a very, this is hotly contested, right, the, the dramatic language that we see. This ex-inmate, along with others who published narratives in the 1830s, made up other sets of voices in this debate over prison suffering. These writers, too, articulated clear ideas about the purpose and limits of affliction. So what can we take? from this 1830 conversation about prisons and suffering. We can see that the Reverend Louis Dwight, like other Protestant reformers and ministers, wanted to play an influential role in American life. They believed they had the right ideas about the purpose of and appropriate limits of suffering. But they conflicted with government and prison officials who increasingly wanted chaplains to support strict prison regimes that featured sufferings designed to make inmates afraid to break the law. Prisoners also had ideas about the purpose and limits of suffering, and in some ways they overlapped with the Protestant reformers. Some of the prison writers also argued that affliction could prompt moral and spiritual regeneration. They thought prison suffering could be made meaningful if it changed someone's life. But they also criticized chaplains who they viewed as complicit in cruel prison regimes. They didn't think that the ministers were necessarily on the right side of the suffering question. Even if Louis Dwight had worried about severe corporal punishments, he never relinquished his influential role in shaping prison policy. So he was always concerned, but he never just quit in protest. Um, and he tried to fight the good fight. But the chaplains he sponsored worked in increasingly awful institutions. 
And the inmates within them sometimes viewed these chaplains as just another partner in the government's disciplinary program. So, a few last words on the search for the Christian prison in the early American Republic. Protestant prison reformers cared deeply about the spiritual and physical lives of the men who inhabited the nation's prisons. They were also concerned about systemic issues that contributed to the prison's rising population, such as poverty, unemployment, and failing urban areas. They wanted all Americans to have a deeply fulfilling spiritual life that manifested itself in good living. In that sense, I believe, they wanted lawbreakers to be treated decently and fairly. They wanted prisons that offered inmates a second chance. They were sure that incarceration in the right sort of prison with just the right kind of suffering would prompt a spiritual and political transformation. Sinners would be saved, criminals would become good citizens. At the same time, the search for the Christian prison was also about securing the nation's Christian identity and the Christian leader's political influence in that kind of nation. The prison reformers desperately wanted to be relevant in the political negotiations that shaped the country's prisons. At times, they agreed to prison practices that appeared to be in direct contrast with their concerns about inmates. They allowed the state's interest in creating law-abiding citizens to overcome the gospel mandate that had called them into the prisons in the first place. The debates over suffering show us how much these ideals could at times overlap and at times be uh, in direct contrast with each other. The 1839 image from Auburn Prison, this one here, has always haunted me. It's haunted me since the day I first saw it. It reminds me of just how high the stakes were and how high the stakes still are. The prison reformers I studied dedicated their lives to ending the unnecessary sufferings brought by severe corporal punishment. They poured their energies into creating institutions designed for an inmate's reformation. But they also cooperated with an institution that took away people's freedoms, especially people on the margins of American society. They cooperated with prison agents who used a little corporal punishment and some who used a lot. And the inmates noticed. Prisoners waited to see if representatives of the church would be on their side, protecting them from harm and working toward their good. And when chaplains failed them, inmates considered it a most bitter betrayal. I think about this even today. Gaining access to a prison, even to do the most simple ministry of visitation, sometimes involves a kind of cooperation with the state that gives me pause. For instance, I regularly visited a prison in North Carolina while I was in graduate school. Toward the end of my time there, a new warden was assigned to the facility. He wanted me and the other visitor volunteers to go through a long application process in order to keep visiting. The paperwork he asked us to sign was full of stipulations limiting our contact with inmates. One line in the stipulations stuck out to me. By signing up to be a spiritual visitor, that was, what we, that was the title we were given, a spiritual visitor, we were giving up our rights to assist prisoners in any other venue, right? We could only be spiritual visitors. Um, one of the visitors that I worked with um, was, a, was a lawyer by trade, and he was torn. If he signed the paperwork, he would be agreeing to stop his work assisting inmates with their legal counsel. But if he didn't sign, he could no longer visit the men. And these were men that he had strong relationships with, built over many years of visitation. I think religious visitors to prisons have been feeling these kinds of limits for a long time. I would say all the way back to the first decades of the 19th century. And while I cannot say what every visitor should do in response to these situations, I will give you the classic historian's observation. Take time to understand the situation fully in the present and historically. Given what we know about prison ministry today and in the past, I think there is clearly one thing we have to say. To visit prisons is a political act. It is to engage with one of the fundamental ways that we organize our society, including the kinds of inequality that mark our society. It is about power, and it's never apolitical. It could be easy to get caught up in discussions about whether or not to visit, how to visit, and what kind of activist role we might take. But we must always remember that inmates lose the most when Christians allow their desire for access and relevancy to undermine the radical liberation that the gospel promises to those who are confined. 
if this anonymous writer and illustrator from 1839 tells us anything, it is that Christians' witness to the incarcerated matters. It matters deeply. And because it matters to prisoners, I think it should matter to us. Thank you. So, uh, we have time for questions. You were willing to put in one of your questions, Oh, right? sure. Oh, great. Sure. So, if anybody has questions, if I can it's on. Good. Oh, great. Okay. If anybody has questions, I will give them the micro. Give him or her the microphone. Thank you for a wonderful presentation. I have two questions. Mm -hmm. uh, some authors, like Timothy Gorange, are suggesting that there's a connection with how um, so-called Christian punishment practices relate to other Christian doctrines, mm -hmm. especially of redemptive suffering. And I'm wondering you. If you could say more about how these early reformers, when they either um, rejected bodily suffering or then to a certain degree found it to be helpful if they actually made theological connections mm -hmm. for defending that point of view. My second question is, other authors like um, James Whitman, we talked about him before, are suggesting that the harsh punishment practices in the U.S. are not only despite of Christian influences, but actually because of Christian influences. Mm -hmm. um, if, I, I wonder if you could say more about this, because it seemed you know, that you were saying, well, it's the state officials who wanted more suffering, and mm -hmm. even if they bought into some suffering, they were actually trying to tone it down. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm still wondering if, you know, how, how authors, and I didn't find in the literature a lot of um, supportive evidence for that, but mm -hmm. I'm, I'm looking for, yeah. for that kind of evidence. So how you um, see the role in that yeah. sense. Well, I'll tell you, when I first started to read about um, prison history, um, everyone characterized American prison history as Gorringe would, that depending on the kind of theology you had, that affected the sort of um, prisons that you imagined. So for instance, everyone said that Quakers would of course have these wonderful, lovely, nice prisons with gardens, and Calvinists just couldn't wait, you know, for everyone to swing from the gallows. It was really, I thought, kind of <laughs> horrible history. Um, because what I found when I started to read the documents was that these guys actually looked a lot, they looked more alike than different. Right? Even the Quakers who said no corporal punishment um, did not mind taking lots of things away from prisoners. Right? It was not a picnic. Um, and the Calvinists actually were, I mean, Calvinists could be very hardcore about depending, uh, defending the, the death penalty. Right? There were several very uh, strong advocates for keeping the death penalty, particularly in the 1840s. But the Calvinists who did prison reform, everyone that I read, they were very worried about corporal punishment going beyond certain limits. So um, I felt like one thing I tried to say in my book was that I think these people are, are closer to one another than being far apart. I don't think Quaker historians liked that very much. Because um, usually they get to stand out in the literature as the nicest. Um, but really, I mean, I think they, you know, these are people who wrote to one another, who talked to one another. Um, they were on all ki in all kinds of organizations with each other, and I think they were more alike than different. So I get a little nervous when um, people say that the theology, and especially atonement theology, is what would affect what a, um, a prison idea would look like. Um, your second question is about Whitman, right? Oh. Yes, and in, in that sense, I, I agree with him, absolutely. I think the fact that there were these Protestant reformers um, who were there and who at least authorized some sort of suffering, that just opened the door, right? There was no one saying, you know, this is something Foucault said over and over, um, you know, the minute you have prisons, you also start having prison reformers because <laughs> people realize that they're terrible. Um, but no one ever says, let's quit. Right? Let's just stop this experiment um, and try something different. Right? They all keep thinking they can tweak it and make it better. And, um, and I think uh, the Protestants who were a part of this process contributed to that because they were always like, well, we'll just, you know, we'll back off on the punishment just this little bit and we'll have this uh, and we'll make sure that there are reading. Like, they were part of that constant tweaking. Um, and 
they were advocating for some sort of suffering. Uh, and I think that kind of allowed, I mean, I think that's, I mean, I think the fact that inmates read that as a kind of authorization um, is very powerful. Oh, it's my teacher. <laughs> Jen, do you think that Americans were different in any way? Or are we simply following European models? I think we just had, I think there was just more opportunity here. I think if the English would have had the opportunity, they would have been on this first. Um, and I think, I think it just happened that these ideas were circulating right at the time before and after the American Revolution, right? When there's just all sorts of opportunity for trying new things uh, in a way that I don't think was um, nearly as possible in England, for instance, um, because people had these ideas already in England. And there was a, a, a kind of evangelical fellow named John Howard who was trying to get some of these things in place. Um, and I just, I don't think there was quite the opportunity. I think the newness of the nation just made it a little bit, I think, it, yeah, I think there was an openness to the possibility. And they also didn't want to be English. Right? They, uh, one of the things I think that made this a kind of popular sort of reform is that it made America different than England. Uh, America was not going to have the horrible corporal punishments. Um, you know, in the, in the uh, 18th century, there were something like 200 capital crimes in England. Right? So it was very easy to kind of say, England is this horrible place where the monarchs take the people's blood. We are going to have this new and Republican. I mean, I think it, it kind of contributed to Republican identity. Um, but I think there were people in England who wanted to do exactly the same thing. Uh, thanks for a very uh, fine lecture. Uh, one of the things that's intriguing to me is um, this uh, little book itself and how much you know about the author. Mm -hmm. uh, did the author pay to have this printed or was yeah. it a friend? Uh, was the government involved at all? Yeah. And then also whether uh, this is um, an expression of a certain genre of literature. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I would say that, um, so I had to, when I was, one of the, um, one of the people that, I, one of my editors that I worked with while um, writing my book asked me a very similar question, right? How do you know that this wasn't actually written by uh, a Protestant reformer? Or how do you know, you know what do you know about this uh, text? Because uh, it has no listed author. Um, and so I kind of tracked down the press that it was, uh, where it was published and kind of the other things that came out of the press at the time. And the one thing that makes me think that this had to come from at least someone who wasn't in reforming circles is that it's very critical of reformers. Um, there's some other anonymous texts from this period because reformers were always loving to write as if they were prisoners themselves, and they would write about how awesome prison was and um, how they got how they and they, I mean seriously they would write they would write these amazing some of them would actually even write dialogues that they composed between prisoners and themselves and, and they would say oh what happened to you in prison and. And, and it would say something like, you know, I met Jesus here. And it was, I've never, I'm so glad I got sent to prison. So you can, the reformer written ones are really obvious. Um, and this one, and a few others actually, there's a few other, um, I have found about five um, of this kind of genre. And, and I think actually there's a lot of, um, there's also, of course, kind of slave narratives uh, in this period, um, narratives by sailors depicting their abuse uh, in the Navy. Um, so there's a kind of genre, and sometimes it gets a little picaresque, like I want to describe to you in great detail my crime, and then how awful prison was. Um, so it, there's a lot going on in this genre. So often it's kind of a bit of an adventure tale, and then a kind of I'm down on my luck tale, but then also kind of political commentary at the same time. So it's a, it's a really interesting genre, but I think you can kind of class it with a lot of kind of narratives of bodily suffering that are happening in the antebellum period. Uh, thank you um, for the lectures, very, very interesting. Uh, two quick questions. One, uh, at one point you said men that were incarcerated. Uh, were women and children also incarcerated? Mm -hmm. And the second is, do you have any evidence of um, different treatment according to race, uh, Native Americans, mm -hmm. Africans, African Americans? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if there would be Asians in New mm -hmm. York at that time, but at least those two groups. Yeah, that's a good, it's a really good question. And I'll just tell you a little bit about the numbers. 
So the prison that uh, Thomas Eddy created, it was called Newgate, um, after, named actually after a prison organized in a completely different fashion in uh, London. Um, uh, he starts this prison, and in the earliest years, there's something like 350 men and eight women, right? So there's very few women in prison. There are laws against, um, uh, there's, a, there's a period, Thomas Eddy uh, actually got a kind of complete ab uh, abolition of corporal punishment, um, but uh, lawmakers brought it back in 1819. And when they brought it back, though, they stipulated that women could not be subject to corporal punishment. Um, although they could be subject to corporal punishment from their husbands, but that's another matter, right? That was another debate at the time. But they could not be by prison guards. Um, so there's a very small number of women, and they really are subject to a kind of alternative sort of discipline, right? There's no corporal punishment, they, and they do not labor in the same way that men did in prison. Um, it's interesting, the race question um, is an interesting one here, because there's definitely a free black community in New York City at this time and, and in New York State, uh, and it only grows uh, throughout this period. And there's, when, when these folks keep statistics about who's in prison, they do note um, uh, people's race. Uh, there's many things that they note, and race is one of them. Um, the reformers themselves and prison administrators don't start talking about race, though, until about the 1830s, and that's when they start talking about maybe needing to segregate the races inside the prison. It doesn't happen, but they discuss whether or not it should. Um, and I think it's interesting that it doesn't happen until the 1830s, um, which is, of course, you know, this period of increasing debate about um, race and slavery. Um, but in the earliest years, it seems like there's a kind of commingling. There are also, um, there were a few cases of Native Americans uh, in the New York prisons, and reformers loved to m I think, make up accounts, um, you know, it's hard to know. But there's a couple of texts that we have of reformers uh, talking about Native Americans coming and giving up their superstition and becoming uh, Christians. But the same is true, though, of Catholics. Um, they had the same kind of accounts of um, Catholic prisoners coming to, because there are no Catholic chaplains in this period. New York does not have a Catholic chaplain until after the Civil War in any of its prisons, which is just unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Um, uh, and of course, a very uh, a decision that shouldn't surprise us. Also, I just finished reading uh, Foucault's *Discipline and Punish*, so um, right. I, I'm I'm trying to uh, deal with those questions as I was listening to you. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I think he seems to suggest is that the rise of incarceration as punishment uh, coincides with the kind of larger social uh, creation of a class of people mm -hmm. called the delinquents. Um, and I'm wondering whether in your research you uh, have found that to be true in terms of uh, the, the sort of American period that you're looking at, whether this, uh, this change from sort of corporal, corporal punishment to uh, to incarceration also created a sort of larger sense within the society that mm -hmm. there's a type of person who goes to prison, a type of person who commits crime that's mm -hmm. different from the rest of us. I definitely think that this is a period in which there are a kind of growing gulf between uh, a sense of there are those who are law-abiding and those who are not law-abiding, right? I think that's really increasing in this period. Um, because before that, in the colonial era, you know, someone got whipped, for stealing something, and then they just went right back to their life in that town. Um, you know, they were not separated uh, for a long period of time. I mean, they were certainly, there was social stigma, a great deal of social stigma, but they were still there. Um, so I think one of the things that the prison does is start to kind of make this gulf between those who commit crimes and those who don't. I would say, in terms of a, a category of delinquent people, I think one of the things that Protestant reformers are interested in is figuring out to whom that category applies. And in this period, it might be all Irish people um, and all free blacks um, um, unless they come to prison and get converted there. And so, so I think they, they, are, they apply that kind of not on an individual basis. I think they're very concerned about entire classes of people fitting this category of delinquent. And I think it's tied into lots of anxieties that are across the early American Republic about who's fit for citizenship, you know, who, who can exercise the right to vote.
Uh-oh. Jen, I've, I've got a dash off, but I'm uh -huh. so interested that I haven't left yet. Okay. So I'm just curious to ask you to say something about, um, you started this morning to talk a little bit about this new book project on mm -hmm. Native Americans, and that it's connected with this prison mm -hmm. project. So I'm just really curious to hear you say a little bit more about how it grew out of it. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm working on a new project right now about um, Protestant missionaries and Catholic missionaries and their, um, the way they were involved in some of the conflicts across the American West, uh, basically the events that we call the Indian Wars. Um, and one of the reasons I got interested in it was I found that after many of these wars across the uh, Western frontier, there would be a period of Indian incarceration. Um, and, or, well, sometimes and or, a period of Indian incarceration and sometimes a kind of spectacular public uh, punishment uh, for Indians that rebelled against the United States. So um, I, think, and I think there's a lot of ties uh, between uh, the kind of experiences Protestant reformers had in the prisons. Um, I think there's also a lot of ties with uh, experiences with uh, the enslaved. Um, and, and these kind of, these, this kind of set of experiences end up, ends up being a kind of resource for the missionaries trying to understand what's happening on the plains. And they use the same models to deal with it. Um, they start prisons. Um, they start boarding schools that look a lot like prisons. Um, and they use spectacular like massive public hangings as a kind of social sign to American Indians about the cost of uprising. So that's what I'm working on now. My mother-in-law was like, do you really have to write about something so sad again? <laughs> um, <laughs> like, you seem like a happy person. But <laughs> Thank you so much for such a rich presentation and um, uh, rich answers to questions as well. Uh, one phrase that you uttered in the answer um, just before this last one strikes me as incredibly relevant to today, and mm -hmm. that is who is fit for citizenship. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the massive disenfranchisement of uh, prisoners. Yes. And I, I know it doesn't relate to the historical research that you've done, but I'm wondering if you have any reflections on the current um, politics of attempts to disenfranchise lots of people mm -hmm. uh, in um, the last uh, 10 years or so. Yeah. Well, and for me, I think there's no way to answer that question without also talking about race, right? Like this is about, um, I mean, given the statistics of who is in prison in the United States, is about the disenfranchisement of black men. Um, and I think it's, you know, to me, one of the most kind of strange moments in American history um, when we look at the documents around the abolition of slavery uh, that basically says no one can be forced to labor, you know, to, to uh, be a part of, to, be, to have to do involuntary, I wish I had it memorized, uh, like no one can be forced to do kind of involuntary servitude except criminals, um, right? So when slavery ends, that door is still opened of involuntary servitude for people who break the law. Um, and I think men, many people theorize that, you know, this is the new racism. Um, and I think looking at kind of how laws are applied here and how things are adjudicated here, it's a pretty compelling argument. Um, and added on to that over time were the disenfranchisement of uh, ex-convicts. Um, and there is very little um, kind of social, there's very little social movement towards changing that. Right? I think most Americans are perfectly comfortable with the disenfranchisement of felons. Um, it's, yeah. And I think we can trace it all the way back to the kind of concerns that we saw at the end of slavery, right? So it, even if slavery ends, there's still going to be a certain kind of slavery for people who break the law. We, we tricked you and moved okay. the microphone. Um, <laughs> so uh, since we're in a you know, full disclosure and why we're interested in these things, I'm the son of an architect uh -huh. and so have been trained to be aware of physical space. Yeah. And I'm curious, you mentioned some about prison in New York and the mm -hmm. garden. Um, changes in sort of prison design, mm -hmm. um, and uh, particularly uh, early YMCA's in the 1860s were built based on prison designs. Very different, hopefully, uh, mm -hmm. mission, um, but there's some so curious about um, that design of prisons. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, I think you could make a lot of comparisons because the early 19th century is the age of all sorts of institution building. I mean, you see, you see overlap between prison architecture, architecture in mental, uh, uh, mental asylums, um, also orphanages, right? So there's all these institutions being created for those on the margins of society. Um, and there's at times these kind of spectacularly gothic uh, structures. So if you look at uh, the kind of the, the most famous one in the United States is in Philadelphia. And if you're ever there, take a tour of the Eastern State Penitentiary. It's an unbelievable building. It looks like a castle, but the worst castle ever. Um, uh, and so I think that, and I think one of the reasons there's overlap in the design is that the same people were on all these committees to start these places. Right, so a lot of people who were uh, working with the earliest prisons in New York were also running the African Free School and the, uh, the new hospital, Bloomingdale Hospital, which is actually still there in New York. Um, the orphan, uh, the kind of juvenile delinquent asylum that opens at a certain point. So I think one of the reasons there is the overlap is not only kind of overlap about ideas, but the same people um, are a part of running all of these places and creating all of these places. I'm good exercise prerogative. Okay. Um, this actually sort of goes back to the, the co-question later, but just in terms of the, the time frame of your, of your book, to me it seems like it follows the sort of the, the arc of nativism and then sort of, you know, 1850s, a bit of a watershed. Uh, mm -hmm. And you've already touched a bit upon this, but I, I mean, it, I mean uh, when you be, I mean, it, it, are there the kinds of changes, you know, Eddie's very early uh, before you begin to get the massive non- you know, WASP immigration patterns uh, mm -hmm. of, uh, of, of, of Europe, of Irish particularly. I mean, are those, I mean, to what extent are those, how closely tracking are these, are these, is the nativist movement and mm -hmm. some of the things that are going on that you're, that you're I'd say in the right? north you can track it pretty closely to the nativist movement, at least until the Civil War. And then once the Civil War occurs, you kind of see this split, I think, between development in the North and the South. And in the North, they actually undergo this another kind of reform moment. Um, we're going to make these places better, this time along the lines of military discipline, which I think is fascinating, um, that what they're going to do is basically treat uh, inmates like kind of first-year military recruits. Uh, it's like boot camp. Um, is what prison becomes, at least for this kind of experimental period in the 1870s. Um, so there's little waves, I would say, in the North um, after the Civil War. I think things change once there's another kind of spike in immigration starting in the 1890s and going into the first decades of the 20th century. Um, it's totally different in the South. Um, and one of the reasons it's different in the South is because of the kind of um, just the massive shift that uh, the end of slavery and reconstruction uh, brings to the society. Um, and slavery, uh, or prisons get very brutal in the South very quickly after the Civil War. Um, whereas I think in the North, there's these kind of uh, periodic waves of reform, people deeply concerned about how harsh the conditions are. Hi, Jen. Thanks for your lecture. Hi. It's really great. Um, I, I do want to go back to that question, though, mm -hmm. of sort of the, the relationship between theology and suffering. You yes. kind of demolished this sort of easy, facile yeah. atonement theory to it. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that many prison chaplains, but the few that I do know today, they don't agree with this idea of redemptive suffering. Right. So where do you see that really changing? I mean, is it sort of a case where Protestants build something that gets out of control mm -hmm. and they end up pulling back from it very early? or is I'm just curious where that line, where yeah. you see that beginning to change, because I don't see that present anymore, right. but it's really present um, earlier, and I see it in yeah. some 18th century stuff as yeah. well. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting one, because I've studied a few reformers in the late 19th century and early 20th century, and I think they too are still at this kind of like, we're going to cooperate, we don't really like everything that's going on, but we really want to have an effect and we want to partner. Uh, and at that point, they start to create things like halfway houses for um, ex-convicts. So I see them still in that kind of like, we're going to partner even though we're uncomfortable. Um, I think things really change with the kind of harshness of sentencing that begins in the 1970s. Um, I think at that point, many chaplains um, just, they feel somewhat alienated uh, within. Um, you know, it's hard, but I mean, the range of the chaplain diversity, it's, I hate to, I hate to make a, a kind of 
draw a broad picture um, because on, you know the biggest prison visitation ministry in the United States, uh, Chuck Colson's Prison Fellowship, I think actually still is very comfortable um, for the most part um, with a lot of the kind of um, practices that are out there. But I, I totally agree with you that there are a lot of chaplains that just are not on board. Um, and I think I would, I would identify that with the kind of harshness of sentencing and the ballooning of the prison population since the 1970s. So that's really, though, a very late Yes. Yeah, I see a lot of cooperation. You know, in the early 20th century, I see them still kind of trying to cooperate. You know, there's a, um, there's a Salvation Army reformer named Maud Booth, right? She's in this Booth family of the Salvation Army. Um, and she um, actually gets a, um, she becomes the honorary president of the Correctional Officers of America um, associate, Professional Association. Like, I can't see that happening to a kind of prison activist today. Um, so, I, and I think that's a kind of sign of how at times they could, they really saw themselves as trying to partner, trying to make things better. Still that kind of effort to like, if we could just tweak it this way, it'll be, we'll finally get it right. I don't think many chaplains feel that way anymore. Right, I think they think it's a really broken system. Well, uh, again, thank you very, very much for a wonderful presentation. Thank you. Thanks so much. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University. Please visit us at emory.edu.